Now this is also on a sheet that you should have been given as you came in the door, so you could follow along there. Psalm 73 on the Pew Bibles, that's page 586. Now part of the purpose of the Psalms is to deliberately slow us down so that we would meditate upon who God is. We like to be fast, we skim read, but Psalms slows us. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read this, you can read along, then I'm going to give you maybe three or four minutes to look at that Psalm with the questions on the other side of that sheet. Now the questions are very simple, that's not to... uh, I'm not speaking down to you. I'm not trying to patronize you. It's simply to slow you down. So to take a pen, answer some things, circle some things, so that as we come to then sing the psalm, we're going to sing it together, and then preach it, you're actually up to speed on what Asaph, the psalmist, is writing. So let me read it, and then I'll give you some time to look at yourself. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely... God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then... I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet... I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God's. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So uh, what has caused the psalmist to almost slip? Yep, the envy of the arrogant, of the prosperity of the wicked. What are some of the words he uses to describe the wicked in those verses? Just shout them out. Arrogant, healthy, Free from burdens. What was that, Donald? Violent. 
violent, proud, carefree. And what brought clarity to the oppressed mind of the Sam writer in verses 16 and 17? He entered the sanctuary of God. And then what are some of the words he describes, uh, used to describe the final destiny of the wicked? Destroyed, swept away. Okay, so that's just to slow us down. Okay, it's to bring you up to speed, as it were, but also to slow you down. And so, to keep on doing that, what we're going to do now is to sing some of Psalm 73. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word tonight would not just come as the words of some guy, but rather they would come in the power of your Spirit and cut us to the heart and then lead us to Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. The original tune to Psalm 73 is unknown. We don't know what Asaph would have sung this to as he led God's people. We've just sung it to Eventide. If I was to suggest a slightly more contemporary tune, I think it would be to that Go Compare song. Go compare. You know that one? And here's why. Because in Psalm 73, what we have is two very clear comparisons. So in verses uh, 1 to 14, we have Asaph's ill-informed comparison that leaves him slipping. But then, in the second half of the psalm, verses 15 to 26, we have Asaph's God-informed comparison that leaves him steadied. Then in verse 28, we have a summary of that comparison. Uh, We don't pick this up so much in the English translation, but in the Hebrew, four times Asaph says, but as for me, he's deliberately saying, I'm making comparisons here. If you've seen the new, I'm not sure if it's Go Compare advert or maybe the Meerkats, but there's one of these adverts where this couple come in, And they just don't see the offers and the promotions that are open to them. And so the man hands them each a pair of glasses. And all of a sudden, I can see clearly now. And all these promotions come before their eyes. And Psalm 73 is almost like Asaph is wearing the wrong prescription in the first half. And it's not until verse 17, which is the pivot verse, the transformation verse... That not a meerkat, but God hands him a right prescription so that he sees not from a worldly perspective, but from an eternal perspective. He starts off in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He starts with good theology. But good theology followed by a but is always worth meditating on in the scriptures. That verse, that creed, that doctrine that Asaph quotes becomes the battleground of the psalm. Is God good to those who are pure in heart? The theology of Israel becomes the torment of Asaph. And in this psalm, he's coming to terms with this short verse as though it were a grueling marathon. As he sees the prosperity of the wicked, it causes his feet to almost slip. His mouth has just uttered this, but when what he sees with his eyes torments him, his feet almost 
slip. So let's look at the first comparison, verses 1 to 14. Slipping like a senseless beast. Now that's not me criticizing Asaph. It's the words he will use later on in the psalm in verses 21 and 22 to describe how he was uh, acting before he came into the sanctuary of God. He says, I was ignorant, I was senseless, I was like a brute beast before you. And that made him almost slip. So let's look. Verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel. But that fact becomes his doubt in verse 3 when he sees the arrogant and the prosperity of the wicked. Now the wicked seems like a harsh phrase to us in our culture, but the psalmist uses it as a catch-all term to define the practical atheism of those who live far from God. And it's deliberately stark given the genre of poetry that he is writing in. But the slipping of his feet is caused by the envy of his eyes. Now his heart comes up a lot in the psalm six times. If you glance verse 1, the pure in heart. Verse 7, he speaks about the wicked, the callous heart. Verse 13, he speaks about, uh, I've kept my heart pure. Verse 21, when my heart was grieved. And then twice in verse 26, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Asaph is not just about behavior, but he is wearing his heart upon his sleeve. His heart is in agony. And so tonight, God by his word doesn't just want to engage with you on the kind of practical level, on a behavioural level. He wants to deal with your heart. With Asaph, he's not only a stunning singing voice, but actually within him is a brute beast. And the colour of those beasts' eyes is green. And for that green-eyed beast, the grass is always greener on the other side. So we see first his envy, his prosperity. If you just scan verses 4 to 12, you will have circled some of these words already. But Asaph sees that wickedness is not only well paid, but it's well thought of. So they are fit, they are full, they are flush, they are flourishing, they are first, and they are followed. He wears these glasses which are rose-tinted, the grass is greener, and he looks at them and says... Life's good. Life's carefree. And his heart turns green. Their conclusion, the wicked in verse 11, is that, well, if we're prospering even though we are proud, then God must be ignorant. Does the Most High know? Does he have knowledge? That is, they are confident of their unaccountability, and therefore they are totally carefree. God's perceived ignorance makes their proud prosperity permissible. And so look at Asaph's conclusion in verse 13. He says, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. He says, Why, why bother with purity when I could be proud and get away with it? Purity has not only been in vain but it's been paid in suffering. Uh, the green-eyed beast becomes something of an eeyore in these verses. Just totally self-pitying. Totally glum. As he realizes that his efforts to live a godly life have been paid with the coins of affliction. 
So Eeyore speaks. The wicked get crowns and we get a cross. Sinners sing and we sigh. And those who do violence get rest. Whereas those of us who seek to promote peace get war. The prosperous wicked, the ignorant God, and therefore the wasted life. The Asaph's eyes in some ways are on the wicked, but actually they're totally turned in upon himself. I have wasted my life. I see your prosperity, and I doubt God, and I hate you. Is God good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart? Have you been there? Have you felt that? As we read Psalm 73, as a mirror, do you see something of the green ice in your reflection? I think I'm there. Maybe things like, well, I look at my friends, and they're on a third holiday this year. They're in Sharm el-Sheikh. And all my money's gone into Shandwick Place. I didn't even get a pew. And you say, well, the people at work, they love that guy, even though he's gobby and he's crude and he's immoral. But the people at work hate me because I keep on mentioning this thing, the word one-to-one. Maybe you look at your friends and their kids are getting straight A's and their kids love them because every Sunday they're taking them to tennis classes. And you look at your kids and they're doing well. But even though they're doing well, you're cut up because you don't know where they're at in terms of their own salvation. And you're not taking them to tennis on a Sunday because you're dragging them here. Maybe it's, well, they had a baby after a one-night stand and we've been married 10 years and we've had three miscarriages. Maybe it's they've bought their second home And our home just keeps on getting broken into by those that we're trying to reach with the gospel. Maybe it's all they're having a great time with all these guys sleeping around and yet here's me discontent and stifled in singleness. You been there? See these green eyes? We doubt God's goodness to us and we hate his goodness to others. I think the most penetrating question that I've had to ask myself is, Why is it that my heart hates when others succeed and loves when they fail? It's because it's a senseless, green-eyed beast that is driven and ruled by envy. My perspective is totally worldly and totally now. Now, when Asaph tries to understand this, verse 16 It is totally oppressive. He doesn't want to speak in case he takes someone else with him, but he's totally caught up inside. God, you you say that you're good to those who are pure in heart. And yet in my striving for purities, for purity, all I've got is suffering. Now the moment of transition, the pivot comes. In verse 17, I was oppressed till, verse 17, I entered the sanctuary of God. 
Clarity does not come from endless introspection. It does not come from traveling around the world to find himself. It comes from meeting with God. When God's singer enters God's sanctuary, the senseless beast becomes a man of understanding. When he views his circumstances from the observatory of his own circumstances, it's oppressive. But when he views them from the observatory of God's perspective, it's clear as the light of day. Till I entered the sanctuary. Now commentators debate what Asaph saw and where he actually was. Uh, We don't know. It may have been that he came into the kind of holy courts where God's people would have gathered together to sing his praise. But whatever Asaph saw, whether it was the glory of God as he'd seen in 2 Chronicles 5, whether it was just a, a voice from heaven. Actually, as we look back as New Testament Christians through the lens of Jesus, whatever he saw, we see better. Whatever he saw, we see much clearer. You could read the book of Hebrews and see that whatever Asaph saw was just a copy of what we see truly. That the way Asaph came to God was through the blood of a goat, but we come through the blood of Jesus. He came to a tent, but we come into heaven itself. He came through a priest again and again and again with sacrifices. We come through the one sacrifice of Christ. So that as we come, we come not so much to a place of clarity, but a person who makes everything clear. That as we come to the Lord Jesus in his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, we come not to a place, but into the very throne room of God himself. To see a throne of grace and a heavenly father. That through his word, the Bible, we see Jesus who is the very display of God where do you need to go if you're oppressed as you look at this wicked world one place to see the face of God in the face of Christ in the word of God only then did Asaph get clarity let me read you some Spurgeon Spurgeon says this the cure for envy lies in living under a constant sense of the divine presence, worshiping God and communing with him all the day long, however long the day may seem. True religion lifts the soul into a higher region where the judgment becomes more clear and the desires are more elevated. The more heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. The fear of God casts out the envy of men. What do we need? We need to come to the person who makes everything clear. That is the Lord Jesus himself. But what does he see in this place of clarity? Because from slipping like a beast, from this place he is steadied by God's hand. What does he understand? Well, verse 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. God says to Asaph, all right, Asaph, you wanted to make comparisons. 
Go compare this. First consider the wicked's final destiny. Asaph see not only their earthly prosperity, but their eternal destiny. And Asaph, when you see that, their eternal destiny makes their earthly prosperity like a dream, like a fantasy. Sarah, at breakfast this morning, said to me, most terrible nightmare last night. I said, tell me, what, what was wrong? I said, Paul Reese. Uh, not every dream about Paul Reese, I'm sure, is a nightmare. But she said, Paul Reese made me stand up in church and sing all on my own. <laughs> and so over breakfast, as I munched on my Weetabix, I had to convince Sarah, you know, Paul's not that bad. <laughs> He's not that mean. And actually, at the end of the day, it was only a nightmare. It was only a dream. It was but a fantasy. And now it's gone. And as Asaph is oppressed, as he views and envies the wicked, what does God tell him? Actually, though they have their hands full, it's only in a dream. It will be gone like a nightmare. It is so fleeting. It is so temporary. Though they have their hands full, their eternity will be full of terror. So why envy them, Asaph? Why on earth would you envy that? Why envy the wealth of dreamland? It is like that. Now let me speak to you if you're not a Christian. I'd love you just to notice in this psalm how easy it is for someone who is prosperous to become proud and someone who is proud to become an oppressor. Now, that is not true every time. But actually, this psalm reveals that we can be quite self-deceived, that when we become prosperous, we have lots, we can become proud. We think too much about ourselves. And then we can become oppressive because we want more. Uh, the psalm wakes us up from that self-deception and says, listen, you need to be careful. But again, the psalm would say to you, do you know what? You have to realize how easy it is for us to interpret God's patience as his ignorance. You may say, well, I seem to be doing all right. Yeah, I'm bending the rules here and there, but I'm prosperous and God doesn't seem to mind fact I'm doing pretty well this psalm says don't mistake his forbearance his patience as his ignorance he does know and he is just and this is the destiny that awaits those who are far from God tonight he invites you to come near and actually say that there is something better than worldly treasure that's where he moves to in the next verses. He goes from the negative side of the comparison. Asaph, why would you envy that when their hands are full of treasure but their eternity is full of terror? Let me show you something better. And so he says in verses 23 to 26, you are grasped and guided into glory. We get another, but as for me, at the start of this verse, the NRV says, yet. He's made a wrong comparison 
But God now corrects that. He says, okay, compare the final destiny of the wicked with the eternal portion of the pure. Do you see that in verse 23? I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Derek Kidner nails this in his commentary. Grasped, guided, glory. Another writer compares that to the chain that we saw in Romans 8. Predestined, foreknown, called, justified, glorified. All those whom he grasps, he will guide. And all those whom he guides, he will bring all the way to glory. Asaph, your hands may be totally empty, but I have you by the hand. And when your hand is in mine, your hands could not be more full. You are with me, and I am with you. Uh, It's interesting to note, what's changed in Asaph's circumstances? Nothing. Nothing's changed. The arrogant and the wicked are still proud and prospering, and Asaph is still sad and suffering. But he's gone from Eeyore to Tigger. Why? Because he realizes that though my hands may be empty materially, and though I may be suffering intensely, that actually I have everything. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. He starts off the psalm and he says, earth has everything I want, the world's prosperity. And earth has nothing I desire. My purity has been in vain. But when he comes to the place of clarity, he realizes, actually in God, I lack no good thing. That's the idea of the word portion. In the Old Testament, the Levites didn't receive an inheritance in the land. They were simply told, the Lord is your portion. He's your share. He's your inheritance. You need nothing but him. And so he says, my heart and my flesh may fail, verse 26, but God's the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Ask yourself this question. When your flesh and your heart fail, and they will, by the way, Will your house, will your possessions, will your family, will your looks, will your car, will your friends be the strength of your heart and your portion forever? No. But actually, when God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever, when your heart and your flesh fail, you gain. (laughs) Because to be with Christ is better by far. And so as we stand upon the crucifixion of Christ where he died for me, and as we stand upon the resurrection of Christ where we're raised with him, you can say, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is my portion forever. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I wonder what glasses you're wearing. If you're wearing the first half of the psalm, or the second half of the psalm. If you're looking from a worldly perspective, ruled by envy, or an eternal perspective, satisfied in Christ. 
if you feel yourself slipping, uh, you need to be aware of this banana skin of the Christian walk. And as you feel yourself slipping, do you ever get this when you're, sli- when you're sleeping? You get this sudden sense that you're falling and your whole body shakes. You ever had that? Or do you know when you're just literally walking and you slip, what does your heart do? It races. Why? It wants to wake you up and to stir you into action. So if you feel like you've seen Asaph, you're like, man, I'm like him. I'm envying. I'm slipping. Naturally, you need to allow your heart to stir you into action. I read another great quote from a writer this week. Questions, anguish, and a sense of stupidity may be used by the Lord to mature his servants. So when you're slipping in the stupidity of envying those who are prosperous in worldly terms, don't waste that stupidity. Don't waste your doubts. What do you need to do? Come to the person of clarity. The beast within you will want to run, but actually we need to tame him or her with an understanding of who God is. So we need to bring him daily to see Christ in the Word. Isn't it true that as soon as you step out the door, you're tempted to envy, your eyes turn green, you see your neighbor's car, then you get on the bus and you read the metro and you envy the celebrities and their lifestyle, and then you get to work and you envy the results that your colleagues are getting, and you go out at lunchtime and you envy the people that are walking hand by hand, and you come home and you envy those who've got family still around so what do we need to do in every one of those circumstances daily hourly till I entered the sanctuary of God till I came to the place of clarity just a quick note too to those of us who may be kind of mentors for younger Christians there's an interesting tension in the psalm because Asaph is wonderfully honest about his own temptations but he's guarded when he is being tempted. Look at verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. He knows that when he's in that moment of temptation, sometimes the wisest thing to do is to shut up in case you bring other people with you. But once he'd been steadied, what does he do? End of the psalm. I will tell of all your deeds. So he slips, he keeps quiet, but once he's been steadied by God's hand, he is very quick to tell people, even of his temptation, that he might bring them towards being more steady. It's quite, just think, this whole psalm is an episode of Asaph's temptation. Imagine Donald was to come to church next Sunday and say, right, I'd love us to sing a song about this temptation I had this week. I'd love you to sing a song about where I saw all these things that I was really tempted to be envious of. And I, I was almost slipping. Actually, that's what Asaph does. We, we, we kind of hate that openness. But Asaph's willing to go through that self kind of uh, revealing that he might bring God's people to maturity. When was the last time you confessed to another Christian for the sake of bringing them to a place of steadiness? think we're good at verse 15 shutting up we're not quite so good at the telling forth and we need to be better
final piece of application. Uh, keep your heart pure and keep your hands in innocence. It's not in vain. God is not ignorant. He does see. There's a great proverb that says, Envy rots the bones, but peace brings joy. It's actually, we think that if we envy the wicked and then go after them, life will be good, but actually it will rot us to the core. But the life of purity is one that is worth fighting for because it brings true peace it is good for me to be near God I've made the Lord my refuge I'll tell of all his deeds let's pray together